Okay, Bibles, electronic devices, Revelation 3. We're going to look at verses 1 and 6 together. Okay, Elizabeth Twolin wrote in Reader's Digest a while back. She wrote in, I guess you could submit letters. They take stuff from folks. And there was this article where she writes that she had had one of those uh, rotten mornings. Her three kids were wired, and they were driving her, <laughs> they were driving her nuts. Uh, she, she tried counting to ten. She tried thinking positive thoughts of, like, beaches and unicorns and all of that kind of stuff. But nothing was working. Uh, she couldn't take it anymore. She had reached the boiling point. She had reached the point of trying to suppress all this pent-up frustration and possibly anger. And so what she did is she needed a release, and so she walks calmly into her bedroom closet, gently shuts the door, and screams her bloody head off. And she said, quote, it was amazing. The effect was amazing. I felt much better. I was ready to face the rest of the day. So refreshed, she opens the door, and she's greeted by three terrified faces. Her five-year-old, mom, her five-year-old says, I told you there were monsters in the closet. The church, the church at Sardis has a monster in the closet. As we read the text... I want you to try to find it. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. To the church in Sardis, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Would you, give, would you give word, and would you give power, and would you give life? And we ask this in your name, amen. All right, so let's do just a quick, brief review. The church at Ephesus was what kind of church? The good church. The church in uh, Smyrna was what church? The suffering church. The church of Pergamon is the false teaching church. The church of Thyatira is the intolerant church or the tolerant church. What's Sardis? The dead church. The church with a monster in its closet. Look at verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, don't miss this. They don't think they're dead. 
Look at verse 1 again. You have the reputation. That means literally it means the name. You think of yourself as being alive. Those around you in the area think of you as being alive. So the church at Sardis, when they hear Jesus say this, they're saying, what are you talking about? We're in a life church. I mean, we're a missional church. We're a reformational church. We're a historic church. We're a traditional church. We're a mercy and social justice-driven church. We're a spirit-led, spirit-baptized, spirit-filled, spirit-victorious church. We're a Bible-believing church. We're a praying church. We're an obeying church. We're a church that's serious for God. We're a church that makes disciples, does evangelism, discipleship. What are you talking about? Jesus says, you have the reputation of being alive. But you're dead. Do you know how difficult that must be to hear something like that? I mean, can you imagine... Can you imagine thinking and feeling and believing in the depths of your being that you're alive, that your church is alive, but reality is, wait, what, Jesus? Wait, I'm not alive? Our church is dead? Sometimes accepting reality it's traumatizing. This can happen in science, can it? I mean, sometimes accepting reality about science can be traumatizing. I mean, can you imagine the folks that said, wait, <laughs> the sun doesn't revolve around the earth? Or how about this one? You're telling me a doctor of science at the University of Flat Earth that the world is round. And then there's Richard Dawkins when he writes, although atheism might have been logically tenable before Darwin, Darwin made it possible to be, intellectually, to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. He goes one step further in The God Delusion. He argues, and I'm going to summarize him, he says this, you cannot be an intelligent scientific thinker and still believe in a personal God. Why? Because science, by its very nature, <laughs> cannot discern or test supernatural causes. Therefore, supernatural causes cannot exist. Do you know what this is saying? This is saying that science, is, of course, is the ultimate arbiter, the ultimate cause, the ultimate determiner, the ultimate revealer of reality. In other words, science is a comprehensive authority or truth that explains everything, absolutely everything in the world. Evidently, 97% of American scientists from the National Academy of Sciences agree, according to a 1998 study. So a, a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga, he responds, he says, to suggest that the very practice of science requires that one reject the idea of God raising someone from the dead. In other words, science rejecting a miracle, science rejecting supernaturalism, naturalism rejecting supernaturalism, naturalism judging supernaturalism, naturalism determining reality even of supernaturalism, right? The idea to suggest that, that one has to reject the idea of God raising, from, God from, raising Jesus from the dead based on science. This argument is like the drunk who insisted on looking for his lost keys only under the street light on the grounds that the light was better there. In fact, it would go the drunk one better if it, if it would insist that because the keys would be hard to find in the dark, they must be under the light. 
sometimes accepting reality is traumatizing, even for a scientist. It also can be traumatizing emotionally, can it not? I mean, wait. Wait. I want to be more than I am? Down to the very roots of my existence, I I want to be in charge of myself down to the roots of my being. It was my favorite line in The Greatest Showman on Earth. Do you remember that line? Telling his wife, he he woke up. I wanted to be more than myself. Wait, I want to impress God? I want to impress people? I even want to impress myself? Really? Wait, I'm mean? I'm angry? I'm not forgiving you? I'm withholding acceptance and relationship from you? I talk bad about you? Wait, you hurt me. You sinned against me. You abused me. You wrecked my life. Wait, I'm dead. I'm not alive. Accepting reality can be traumatizing. In the movie Shutter Island, the main character played by Leonardo DiCaprio makes a gruesome discovery about himself at the end of the movie, and it changes the whole movie. It's one of those kind of movies, like Sixth Sense, Beautiful Mind, all that kind of stuff. Do you know, though, in the Beautiful Mind, I still kept thinking that there were bad guys coming to get him to the very end. If those of you familiar with that movie, there were no bad guys getting him. He was crazy. So it took a crazy person to actually think he wasn't crazy. So... What's that say about me? Well, my wife figured it out. She figured it out about five minutes into the movie. She's like, honey, he's crazy. And I'm like, no, there are dudes after him. I'm still a little bitter about that. I still think there are dudes after him. But anyhow, DiCaprio comes to this decision where he has to make a decision. Do I enter the real world? If he enters the real world, he's got to accept the horrible truth about himself. Or does he re-enter his imaginary world by suppressing the horrible truth about himself? If he chooses the real world and accepts, accepts this horrible truth about himself, he's free. He's free personally. He's free institutionally. The white coats don't take him away. But if he doesn't, if he re-enters his imaginary world, suppresses the gruesome truth about himself, the white coats take him away. So what does he do? It's a no-brainer, right? He chooses his imaginary world. His friend freaks out. His friend's like, what are you doing? His friend is pleading and begging, don't do this. Come back to the real world. Why are you doing this, he says. And as DiCaprio, the character, is being dragged away by the white coats, he says, what's better? To be good in my world or a monster in yours. Sometimes embracing, accepting reality can be so traumatizing, we won't do it. 
We'd rather live in our imaginary world. Jesus, to the church at Sardis, is saying, it's the controlling command, it's the controlling invitation, it's the controlling imperative of the whole book of this letter to Sardis. He's inviting the church at Sardis to embrace trauma, accept trauma, face reality. Jesus is saying to them, face it, embrace it, accept reality, enter into the real world, face the fact that you're not alive, but you're dead. What kind of dead, though, are we talking about here? We've got to figure that out before we can kind of move on because we've got to know what are we supposed to embrace? What are you and I supposed to acknowledge about ourselves? What's dead? Look at the rest of verse 2. Remain what strengthens and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Sometimes the Bible talks about dead works, right? Works that cannot produce life, works that cannot produce acceptance, works that cannot produce justification, works that can't make you right, works that can't make you acceptable, works that can't make you flourish, works that can't bless you, works that can't complete you, works that can't give you an identity. They're dead works. They can't give you salvation. The Bible talks like that. But the Bible also says there are works, dead works, that should exist. But they don't, so they're dead works. Image-bearing works. Works in your character and your conduct that are pleasing and human and flourishing and reflective of God, works of love to God and love to others, good works, but there are none, so they're dead works. The Bible talks like that. Let's be clear, dead works is not in view here. So what's in view? What's the monster in the closet? Did you find it? Did you hear it? Or better yet, did you hear the person screaming that did? Let's say we see a turtle in the street. You're driving along and you see a turtle in the street. If you're not of driving age, if you're a child under 16, let's say you're riding a bike. And I asked the first service, I, I really want to know, do kids ride bikes anymore? <laughs> Just wonder. Bikes are good. Yes, turtles are good. Okay, so you see a turtle. You go up to the turtle, you're going to move it off the street. You go up and you grab the turtle, but it's just a, it's just a shell. It's only a shell. The turtle's missing. Jesus comes to the church at Sardis, picks it up, and it's only a shell. There's nothing inside. The turtle is missing. What's the turtle? Hendricks explains, he says, the forms were there, the works were there, the ceremonies were there, the religious customs and traditions, the services were there. We could add stuff like the worship was there, the reading and studying of scripture was there, praying was there, obedience and striving to be holy was there, ministry, evangelism, discipleship, reaching people was there. We could say service was there. We could say mercy was there. We could say helping the widow, taking care of the poor. It was there. Hendrickson goes on, but the real essence was lacking. I'm saying this part. There was no turtle. There was only a shell. Hendrickson, the forms were empty, but they were not, they were not filled full of essence. The reality was gone. Before God, the church was dead. 
It's not works. It's not the shell that's missing in Sardis. Faith is missing in Sardis. The heart of Christianity is missing in Sardis. Personally connecting to Jesus and his salvation in all of life in new ways, in fresh ways, in ongoing ways, in continual ways, was missing in Sardis. Jesus and his salvation reaching and renewing Sardis, the church, and then their marriages, and their homes, and their parenting, and the schools, and the the culture, the city that they lived in, their neighborhoods, their economic guilds, and their trade expertises, and fraternities, everything was not being reached. We would say it this way, wouldn't we? We'd say gospel growth wasn't there. Gospel renewal wasn't there. A living, breathing, thriving, growing, energized faith was not there. It was dead. Let's see, after seven years of being campus ministry, and I was at, let's see, Brown, Harvard, BU, Boston University, and then a year starting campus ministries in Kazakhstan, a place called Alma Atal. After seven years of doing that kind of campus work, I was burned out. I was exhausted, and I'm not talking about being burned out and being exhausted because you're doing work. Everybody gets burned out. Everybody gets exhausted from doing work. Life is work. When the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few, guess what? There's always more work than there are laborers. You're always going to have more to do. Always. So you're always going to get tired. You're always going to get exhausted. But I'm talking about an exhaustion that goes down to the roots and the core, the very fabric and the very foundation of my existence. I was exhausted. A year after being back uh, from Kazakhstan, and a year after married now, that summer, I was on a beach in Wildwood, New Jersey, in the middle of an evangelistic conversation with a group of inebriated and half-dressed 20-something-year-olds. I was walking and talking about their need for Jesus, and I had this distinct thought, while expressing that they need Jesus, I thought it was loud, it was clear, it was real. Jeff, why do you as a Christian need Jesus? Why do you, in the midst of doing ministry and doing ministry all over the United States with the the future leaders of this country and the world, and all over the world, why do you feel so personally disconnected from Jesus. I had no answer. And it was traumatizing. I want you to look what Jesus says in verse 1. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God. This is unbelievable. Seven means completion. Seven means fullness. Seven means comprehensiveness. Seven means totality and perfection. What we get here is a vision of the Spirit, the fullness of God. 
One theologian puts it this way. This is the real spirit of God in all his fullness. This is the spirit in all his energy and all his power and all his worth and all his work. On the throne, the seven spirits of God fill reality. They fill the centerpiece of the universe. Don't miss who holds it. Don't miss who has the fullness of the Spirit of God in his hand. Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis, what Jesus is saying to people that are burned out down at the core and the roots of their existence, people that are exhausted, trying to keep the Christian life going, people that... now. We tend to think of it as an evil thing. You know, Jesus says, quotes Isaiah, look, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Don't turn it evil. Turn it into reality. Like, you know, when you come in here to worship day, you start singing, but your heart's far from him. That applies. When you are talking to your kids about Jesus, and you're talking about the things in the Jesus Storybook Bible, or doctrines, and your heart is far from the realities that you're talking to your kids about. That applies. When you're at work and you, you know about putting Jesus on display in your work and doing excellent work, but your heart's just so disengaged, that applies. And so people that are exhausted and people that are anxious and people that have a heart that's not fully engaged in these realities, Jesus says... He comes to you and me, and he says, where I go, my spirit goes. Don't miss this. That's why verse 3, look at verse 3. Remember then, here's, remember then what you received and what you heard. Remember what you received and what you heard. In the Bible, almost every time, received is associated with receiving the Holy Spirit. In John, it's almost 100% of the time, and he's the one that writes Revelation. So the context here is what you've received is the Holy Spirit. Heard throughout the Bible is associated with the gospel message. So you've heard the gospel message, and what Jesus is doing is he's putting the gospel message and the Holy Spirit together as if they're married and they're united and they're inseparable. Wherever Jesus goes, wherever good news announcing the reality of who he is and what he's done, wherever he goes, the fullness of the Spirit goes. Wherever those words land on ears, the Spirit lands on hearts. If the sponge is the gospel, the good news, and you soak it up in water, and we're calling that the Holy Spirit, what happens when you hear the gospel, when you hear the good news, Jesus is saying, I squeeze the Holy Spirit on you, and you get soaked, and you get saturated. The good news and the Spirit go together. Do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Jesus is saying, then get filled with the gospel. Do you want to walk in engaging me, renewed by me, reached by me? Have the gospel transform you. That's what keeping in a step with the Spirit means. Keeping in step with the gospel is keeping in step with the Spirit. The Spirit and the good news go together. And so Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis, wake up. Remember the Spirit in hearing good news 
is how you get reached. It's how you get renewed. It's how you get healed. It's how the turtle is there. It's how your empty shell is taken care of. And then your works are complete. A living faith comes by hearing. If Paul was here, he'd say, look, a living faith comes by hearing, hearing the words of Jesus. Are you checking out Christianity this morning? Or just you're in, a, you're in a season right now checking it out. And somehow you wandered in here or you have a friend that brought you in here. You wonder, why do I need Jesus? Because you know, like everybody, of course everybody wants to go to heaven, right? I, don't, I have hardly, in all my years of doing ministry, had hardly anyone tell me they don't want to go to heaven. Had a witch tell me that, that's true. And I've had, I've had people say they did not want to, I take that back. But not that many. Most people want to go to heaven. But what they're asking, maybe you're asking, okay, I want to go to heaven, that's fine, so what do I need to do to go to heaven? But what does Jesus mean for life right now? What does Jesus mean for living your life right now? Look what Jesus says in verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. These are people, he's going to talk about people that do have a living faith. So there's a few in there, right? People who have not soiled their garments. That's interesting. They walk with me in white for they are worthy. Now, having a white garment in Revelation, having a white garment in Ezekiel, having a white garment in the Bible always means you are righteous. It always means you are approved. It always means you're worthy. It always means you're acceptable. It means you are a complete, perfect human being. It always means you're enough. Do you want to be enough? You're enough in a white garment. And this is what's so key. Don't miss this. This white garment is not achieved. It's received. This white garment is the white garment of Jesus himself. And don't miss this, he only gives white garments to those who have soiled garments. So if you know you have a soiled garment, you're ready for a white garment. A Christian is not only clothed in white garments in heaven, verse 5, but a Christian walks around on this earth right now in white garments. You know what this means? This will change your life. You no longer have to live to impress God and impress others and even impress yourself. You have the joy and the freedom of walking in self-forgetfulness. So wake up. Jesus says, wake up. Are you stuck in some sin? So let me be clear about this. You are, and I am. Are we all clear on that? Okay. So are you overwhelmed with thoughts and feelings of accusations 
and shame? Are you overwhelmed with thoughts and feelings of guilt and condemnation? Are you overwhelmed with thoughts and feelings of being a failure and not enough? Are you overwhelmed like your thoughts won't give you rest, your feelings won't give you rest, your emotions won't give you rest, and there's nothing you can do about it? You've come to the end. You don't know what to do. If, if is that you? Has that ever been you? Look what Jesus says in verse 5. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear. This is phenomenal. This is the ultimate final courtroom on an ultimate final day. You got a picture like, you got to picture columns that go up, but you never see where they go off to. You got to picture this wide open facility that's just boundless in space and boundless in majesty and infinite in wonder and and every heavenly creature that's ever been made and existed is in the seats surrounding this empty space in the center every creature on earth is in the seats so you've got Anyone that has ever lived in the history of the planet and every creature that's ever been made in the history of the cosmos, going all the way back to Genesis 1, in the seats of this ultimate court, of this ultimate coliseum that is circular and in dead center, all alone, is you. And they're measuring you. They're looking at you. They're watching you. They're judging you. Sartre says, this is hell. Being looked at is hell. And Jesus calls out before this throng of multitudes of celestial and earthly beings, she's mine. She's righteous. She's perfect. She's acceptable. And she's home. And the whole place erupts. Greater than any Super Bowl triumph. You are shame free. And your destination is shame-free. Wake.